Okay, we're going to head into the Citizens series, which potentially is possibly one of the most controversial series that we've ever run. And my wife is very keen that, uh, she's so keen that she hasn't dared to come with me today in case I put my feet in it. Uh, we're, we're heading into a series. Some of you may or may not have noticed that there's a general election coming up in less than a month's time now. And there's some huge, massive issues that uh, are coming up uh, today or yesterday. What, what, what came up yesterday? Inheritance tax, I think, came up yesterday. And uh, uh, tax evasion, tax avoidance, I think, was some of the big issues. NHS was the previous days. And some of you would have stayed in and watched the big debate the other week when seven candidates at the front and all encouraged one another with what a good job everyone else is doing and uh, yeah so what we want to do is look at some of these big discussions the first three are going to be actually quite weighted towards some of the political issues the subsequent seven we think are going to be big issues that are going to come up in the next uh, parliamentary term and why we want to look at these because ultimately our citizenship is in heaven where we await, eagerly await a saviour from that. From the book of Philippians, letter to the Philippians. If we're Christian here, then actually we're not just UK citizens or whatever nationality you are. Ultimately, we are citizens of heaven. We're, we're kingdom citizens. So therefore, how do we act and behave and think and respond? Not because of our physical heritage, but now because of our spiritual heritage. And that's going to challenge and that's going to provoke because I'm pretty sure in this room there'll be some people who are right-wing, there'll be some people who are left-wing, some people will be extremely left-wing, some people will be extremely right-wing, some people have no idea what wings are. What I, I want to encourage is actually, are there some biblical principles in here? How, how do we live according to God? So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at immigration. We're going to be looking at government. What's the point of government? We're going to look at the economy. We're going to look at some issues like life. Where does life begin, start? What about IVF and three-way babies and other interesting subjects? What about death? Coming up in, guaranteed, pretty much coming up in the next term will be about end-of-life care and voluntary and euthanasia and stuff. How do we respond to that as citizens of the kingdom? We're going to be looking at warfare, we're going to be looking at family, how do we define what family is in the current context, and a number of issues, which I understand for some, you go, well, that's provoking, isn't it? But look, I'm not standing here as a politician, I'm not standing here as someone who's very wise. Sometimes when I've delved into some political thing, I usually get myself into hot water. And uh, what I'm trying to do today, and over the subsequent weeks, we're just trying to look at this. Is there a kingdom perspective uh, that we can adopt and live by, which actually might challenge some of our upbringing, our background, and actually even provoke some of our own internal prejudices and our own beliefs, because I want us to be living how God wants us to live. So regardless of who wins in a few weeks' time, it still continues that this is how God is wanting us to live it out. Does that make sense? Okay, so that is why we want to head into this uh, subject today. So I'm going to kick it off in Seaford on the subject of welfare. Okay. Should, should there be such a thing as welfare? See, the welfare is the provision of a minimum level of well-being and social support for all citizens. Should we, as Christian citizens, 
look to finance and support the unemployed, the elderly, the immigrant, the disabled? Should we be providing housing and healthcare and education? And if we are, is that for people who are in the UK, who were born in the UK, who were in Europe, or do we provide that for everyone in the world? Should we simply fund everyone with everything? Is there a limit? Is there a minimum requirement? Do we bless those who are the deserving poor, and how do we define who are deserving? Who, if anyone, should fund welfare? Who, if anyone, should receive welfare? And how, if it's right, should welfare be distributed? Hmm, interesting. Sometimes people come to us and go, you don't preach enough about Jesus. I hope that the last series on uh, Jesus is Better kind of has been, you know, this 10-week study in, in this New Testament book called Hebrews. It's very much based on the life of Jesus. This one is kind of a little bit more topical, thematic, but we still want it to be underpinned by who Jesus is and the teaching of Jesus. The official government figures released in November 2014, and you might have all received notification of this, is that 24.5% of all the government's money, all their income, is spent on welfare. A quarter of all of government spending is in this one area. No wonder it's such a political hot potato with headlines. Let's put a few of the headlines up. This was the Daily Mail a few years back. Eight out of ten claiming benefits are fit to work. Okay, then Daily Telegraph. There really are far, far too many people sponging off the taxpayer right now with their fake or exaggerated disabilities. The fake disabled are crippling our economy. Uh, Tony Blair said this part of just after he was elected in 97. Behind the statistics lie households where three generations have never had a job. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith uh, part of Conservative government, about 1.4 million people spent almost 10 years on out-of-work benefits under the last government. Uh, George Osborne, a couple of years back, said this, we estimate that £5 billion is being lost through benefit fraud each year. And again, a couple of years later, George Osborne, the Chancellor, said this, we're not being fair to the person who leaves home every morning to go out to work and see their neighbour still asleep living a life on benefits. Now, when we look at some of those stories, of course, it's going to be provoking some response and reaction. Some of you will be going, yes, that's right. Depends if you're on this wing. If you're on this wing, you'll be going, no, that's wrong. David Cameron, in a major speech in 2011, today he said, I wanted to talk about troubled families. Let me be clear what I mean by this phrase. Officialdom might call them families with multiple disadvantages. Some in the press call them neighbours from hell. Whatever you call them, I think we have all known for years that a relatively small number of families are the source of a large proportion of the problems in society. Drug addiction, alcohol abuse, crime, a culture of disruption and irresponsibility that cascades through generations We've always known that these families cost an extraordinary amount of money, but now we've come up with the actual figure. Last year, the state spent an estimated £9 billion on just 120,000 families. That is around 75,000 per year per family. 
Now, when we hear that, we go, that's not right, don't we? Uh, Last week, Mr. Farage said this. You can come into Britain from anywhere in the world and get diagnosed with HIV and get the retroviral drugs that cost up to £25,000 per year per patient. He had to defend his position the following day, and he said this. What is the sensible Christian thing to do? Look after British people or foreign nationals. The sensible Christian thing to do is look after your family and your community first. Was Nigel right? Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay. Make sure foreigners and orphans get their just rights. Don't take the cloak of a widow as a security for a loan. Don't ever forget that you were once a slave in Egypt and God, your God, got you out of there. I command you, do what I'm telling you. When you harvest your grain and forget a sheaf back in the field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the orphan and the widow so that God, your God, will bless you in all of your work. When you shake the olive off your trees, don't go back over the branches and strip them bare. What's left is for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. And when you cut the grapes in your vineyard, don't take every last grape. Leave a few for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. Don't ever forget that you were slaves in Egypt. I command you, do what I'm telling you. I suspect with possibly one or two exceptions, there's not many people who are going out collecting wheat or shaking their olive trees or picking the grapes. But there's some really important principles in here. I was chatting with Andrew Wilson about this passage and he wrote me this email and he said this. He said, These instructions are not not addressed to a contemporary British people in a secular liberal republic. So we can't just stop agrarian instructions onto a digital economy without contextualizing it. Now you all know that. Okay. Now I know we have to take care today that we don't slap slap agrarian instructions onto a digital economy without contextualizing it. I understand that that's a given for you in Seaford. That is not going to be a problem. Seaford Town Centre, uh, Eastbourne Town Centre, they'll be rubbish at this. But you, I understand that you are able to contextualise this, that you are not talking about, well, I'm not a grape picker and I'm not a sheaf wheat collector and I'm not doing this. It does not apply. What we've got to look at this, basically, it narrows down in that passage, whenever you do your work, you can keep most of it, but not all of it. Some needs to be left for the poor. Why? Because it reflects God's heart for the poor. God's heart for the welfare of people. Especially the at-risk groups in our community. The foreigners, the orphans, the widows, the asylum seekers, the children, the elderly. See, it's not only mentioned in this passage in Deuteronomy, God, it's just kind of Old Testament kind of stuff. Well, other Old Testament stuff is written the same thing in the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Amos, in Zechariah. It's God's mandate. This is God's manifesto. Look after the poor. Have welfare. But what about the New Testament? Well, not only were the early church instructed to provide that sort of financial provision for the poor amongst them, it was actually at the very heart of the vision of what Christianity should actually look like. 
If people wanted to look at what is Christianity, what does it actually look like, generosity towards those uh, vulnerable people was actually one of the clearest expressions of what the faith was about. So Jesus said this in Matthew 25, I was hungry, you fed me, naked and you clothed me, a stranger and you welcomed me in prison and you visited me. In Acts chapter 4, it says this, There was no one that had anything that belonged to him or his own, but they had everything in common. A little bit later on, when one of the early church leaders, a man called Paul, he was writing to the church in Corinth, was commending the Christians in Macedonia, and he said this, In their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So even the most poor, even the most vulnerable demanded of Paul that they should be involved in the offering that was being taken up. Why? Because it was clearly an an expression of what actually ultimately the grace of God does for us. And actually Paul goes on to say that, that, that it is about grace. See, it's not only encouraged, but it's actually expressed in the heart of Christianity. If you are a Christian, this is what you should look like. If people are hungry, feed them. If people are naked, well, I, the basic essentials to cover someone's shame. Clothe them. Give people dignity. If there's a stranger, welcome them. We have seven seconds to make an impression, first impression. Have you knew that? a lot of research. In the first seven seconds of meeting someone for the first time, you can make up to 11 assumptions about that individual. Not just issues like their gender, but their ability, their social status, ethnicity. 11 things in the first seven seconds. So when people meet us, oh, do they get the welcoming impression? Do they go, it's good, good to see you. Do do they get the the raised eyebrows of acknowledgement? It's lovely to see you. Do they get the raised eyebrows of disapproval? (laughs) Seven seconds. If the hungry feed them, if the naked clothe them, give people dignity, if they're a stranger, welcome them. Not just the people like you, but the people who are strange to you. A stranger. So what does Deuteronomy 24 and other passages like answer the questions earlier? Who should fund welfare? Who should receive welfare? And how should welfare be distributed? So who should fund welfare? Well, you'll have some right-wing opinions. Everyone is responsible for their own welfare. Therefore, the poor should pay for themselves. More of an extreme view. So therefore, the outworking of that view is that they should pay for their own medication and not just sponge off UK taxpayers. We must stop foreign aid. We must drive down the benefit culture because it is the poorest responsibility. They got themselves in, into that situation, get themselves in. Okay, that would be an extreme view. An extreme left-wing view, the existence of rich people is in itself injustice and therefore effectively the rich should be paying and you will hear expressions like those with a broader shoulders should carry the greatest burden or responsibility. Let's introduce various taxes in order to bring equality by taxing those who have the most 
to balance out the injustice and to share that out. And that's why maybe some of them don't talk about abolishing inheritance tax. It's interesting in the recent TV debate that there was two parties being represented. One was saying, you should cancel, we must cancel all foreign aid. Let's look after our own. And another party on the debate was saying, let's just not cancel it, but let's significantly increase foreign aid. Why? Because her translation of the the UK was that we are, as a nation, got huge broad shoulders from us. We should go out and we should share it out across the world. Two very opposing views. What's God saying? I must, please, I'm not coming from a right or a left wing. What does God say? See, in the Deuteronomy passage, God is clearly talking to the, an entire nation, all of them. Remember the context. The people were destined to be smallholders, farmers, who would live off the land. And the command, all of you are responsible for leaving behind food for the poor to bless the foreigner, to bless the orphan, and to bless the widow. Why? (laughs) Because you've been blessed. Bless others. Because you've been blessed. Bless others. Remember where you were, Moses said. Remember, you were in slavery. You you were in Egypt. You were were locked in. You you were in poverty. You were trapped. You were enslaved to then kind of a government which were oppressing you. But now you're not. I've brought you out of the land. I've I've taken you across uh, the Red Sea. I've brought you actually into and went on into the promises of God. So Moses is saying, look, be generous. Why? Because you are the recipients of generosity. Be be grace-filled because you have received grace. Excel in, in, in grace, Paul said to the church in Corinth. Excel in it. Excel, if you excel in grace, then an outworking of excelling in grace is that you'll excel in generosity. If you understand and comprehend what God's grace has done towards us, therefore work that out into the community and society that you're a part of. Let other people feel the blessing of that. So in Deuteronomy, it just says, look, excel in these things. If you understand grace, Remember your past, remember where you are now, and remember your future. And when we get that and understand that, we go, oh, God, I thank you that I'm in this position that actually I can help those people who have not received what I have received from you. So who receives? Well, the answer to that question is the poor. In Deuteronomy and throughout, the poor always recipients of the welfare, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, those who are vulnerable. Other parts of the Bible talks about the blind, the lame, the lepers, those who are socially excluded. But to be honest, there is no biblical mandate for us to provide welfare for everyone. There's nothing in the Bible about free healthcare, educational pensions or prescriptions or sun cream or toothpaste on the NHS. But the Bible does say we ought to provide for everyone who cannot provide for themselves. I say, okay, well, define that. Some of you itching, okay, yeah, yeah, I get the fact that maybe there's a generosity for those who deserve it, and then we come into this bracket of the deserving poor. I'll come back to that. 
we benefit from this amazing healthcare in which we're living in the education system in the society. Society has thrived. It's done well. But it's a Christian influence, that framework, that has blessed this society. Historically, if you look back at people like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury, see, the gospel has changed not only their life, but in turn, they went on to change society's life. So back in the 18th century, a gentleman called Robert Rakes suddenly could see the awfulness of what was happening of a poverty upon the communities that he was a part of, and he came to the conclusion that we need to educate people out of this. And so he started Sunday school movement. Back in the slums. Why Sunday school? Because they worked six days in the factories. Sunday was the only day that they weren't working, so the Sunday school movement began, and within 50 years, one and a quarter million people were involved in Sunday schools. That, at the time, was 25% of the UK population. And then other characters, like uh, John Pounds, as a young guy, fell uh, into uh, dockyards in Portsmouth, crippled as a result of that, became a cobbler, but he wanted to do more with his life, and so he started a school for underprivileged children. That sparked off something, which went on to... Later on, about another 60 years later, the government then made the decision we need to be providing education for all. So the very foundation of stuff like education and healthcare and welfare and the reforms that were taking place was people's heart for the gospel because behind it was this sense that, look, these people need opportunity, they need the chance, and they need dignity. There's equality in the gospel. And at the time, there was no equality. So we can't argue from the Bible whether we should be paying the government for the NHS or schooling or benefits or housing. However, as a result of social reforms, this nation has prospered as a result. And therefore, it is no uh, wonder that other people want to come into this country to benefit from it. But what's our response to that? I want to excel in grace. I want to excel in generosity. Because to be honest, I did nothing to inherit my UK citizenship. My son, Jake, arrived back from South Africa a few days ago. He'd been working in a, a, a project uh, called Live Village, a project in Durban, South Africa, which I think houses some of like four, five hundred orphans of HIV. Why would my son have access to HIV treatment and these children in Durban, South Africa wouldn't? Why does my son get an opportunity in life to travel? <laughs> Why does my son get the opportunity and access to education? Why does my son get access to health care? He did nothing to inherit that. Just by the virtue that he was born here, that he has received it grace and because of grace excel in generosity I think honestly I just think that there's a biblical position I'm not, I, can't, I don't know the answer I, I don't know I can't get can this country afford this that and the other what about all the foreign foreigners coming into interesting one on the HIV thing that Nigel Farage quoted the week, 7,000 people charging, you know, 60% of the 7,000 people coming in, HIV, foreign nationals coming and getting the treatment, 25,000 pounds. His worst case scenario, 105 million pounds costing the NHS. When you do the real figures, it was less than 18 million. 
but it's sending out a message which is stigmatizing, which is not grace-filled. My children did nothing. I did nothing. So how do we help the poor? The deserving poor. How do we define the deserving poor? Uh, there's a clear economic challenge within the UK. We can't get away from that. Budget has to be balanced. The danger is where the cut's going to be made. Uh, we do only have a limited pot of money. I understand that and understand why the uh, politicians are saying that. But the danger is those people who are worst off will become even more worst off, more worse off than most. With some of the changes that are taking place in the welfare reform, some of you might well have uh, been the recipients of this, the changes to disability-related benefits, the recipients being assessed now from uh, incapacity benefit across the job seeker allowance, the impact it's having on people, tens of thousands of people, uh, the impact of the changes to housing benefits, you'll hear references to things like uh, bedroom tax and the effect and the, uh, the influence that's having certainly on 660 to 670,000 families, some of you might be them. It's having a devastating effect on many people. Now, some of those people, it's absolutely right that if they can work, then work. It's good. It actually gives dignity. But is the support mechanism in place? Are we helping people to get there? And what about the people who have been assessed? Of uh, the 40% or of the challenges, decisions that were made, 40% of those challenges were challenged. 38 out of the 40% or 98, 95% of any challenge was successful. So people were being wrongly assessed and said, you are able and capable to go and work. And 95% of those people who have been assessed and challenged it, actually they were reassessed and said, you can't. It affects people's lives. We're called to support the vulnerable. How do we do that as a citizen of the king? To be honest, we need to, I need to face some of my prejudices and be provoked. Because I think sometimes there's some myths that we're being sold, which I don't think are true. So, like, behind the statistics, like households with generations have never had a job, the official DWP statistics say 0.1% of the 20 million workforce had two generations in one family unemployed. 0.1%. That equated to 20, of the 20 million workforce, 20,000 families. What about the claim of 1.4 million people spent 10 years in out-of-work benefits? Sounds awful. 0.1% of claimants were unemployed for 10 years. 90.5% were on incapacity benefit. 6% were single parents, 2% were carers of people who had disabilities. You go, but, but, but what about those on incapacity benefit if they can work? What about those other claims of 8 out of 10 people? Uh, those 8 out of 10, and if they're defrauding the system, they could get out, out of... Okay, there's a hotline that you can ring up if people are fraud. 250,000 people ring it up to say, my neighbour's on the fiddle. <laughs> of those 250,000, 98.7% are genuine claimants. I think it's only 20% of someone's disability is a noticeable disability, recognisable. See, observable disability. See, we can make judgments, we can make assessments. Like, it's like in a parking bay, disabled parking bay, and people get out and they look as if they're able to walk to the shop and they're, oh, they're on the fiddle. Only one in five disabilities are, is recognisable. And actually, we can approach society like that. 
especially if we're kind of like there's some incentive to try to change us in some ways, to view and to stigmatize and dogmatize people who are in some way in receipt of some sort of financial benefit. What about the 120,000 neighbors from hell costing the UK taxpayer? Well, those figures were from another study completely, which didn't reference dysfunctional families whatsoever. It was more about children, families with troubles, not family causing the troubles. The existence of poverty is far more acceptable to those if we think there's a cause behind it, if they're to blame. See, the problem is, is that we can get very hard-hearted and cynical. The deserving poor. Grace is extending generosity towards the undeserving. I'm an undeserving recipient of the grace of God. I think my response, honestly, is how can I excel in it? How, how, that's my personal response. As a citizen of the King of God, King of heaven, as a citizen of heaven, how can I excel in generosity? Without judging, without assessing, without approving, without disapproving, just my heart, how can I excel in it? The 24.5% spent on welfare, the government didn't do a breakdown at the time. Helpfully, the Institute of Fiscal Studies did do a breakdown because it just says benefits and welfares and what's the breakdown of that? Well, the true figures, once it was all kind of analysed, indicated that 15% was spent on benefits aimed at families, young families, 15% was sick and disabled, 18% on people who were unemployed and those on low income, and 52% of the welfare bill is spent on elderly people in pensions. But it's not a vote winner to say, old people, you need to die sooner because you're crippling the economy of the country. I have no problem with 50% of the welfare budget being spent on the elderly. Look after the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. I have no problem with that. But the danger is the most vulnerable in our society being stigmatized as being lazy or fraudulent you know, the 5 billion figure, it was actually was 1.9 billion, the 3.1 billion was mistakes made by the government, just added to the fraud. People are addicts, addicted to alcohol and drug, we give benefits and they're just spending it on booze. Well, 0.9% of people in receipt of a benefit have got some sort of addiction, 0.9. Unable to budget properly because properly they're spending on televisions and mobiles and alcohol or they're living the easy life on Benefit Street, or they are causing the budget deficit, crippling the economy. The welfare bill hasn't changed in 20 years. It's been absolutely static. See, I just, as I was looking at this, God, I said, let my heart be good in this. So I can't come from a right wing, from a left wing, from an extreme. I'm just, God, let my heart be right in this. Because I'm a recipient of your grace help me to be grace-filled towards others without prejudice and without judgment so that I can be generous towards others so that they can be receiving something of the kindness and the goodness of God. We need to be careful we don't demonize the very people that we are called to bless. Challenge the prejudice. We need to think it through carefully because some of the very people we should be helping are taking the hit. I'm kind of running out of time. I had a whole section of how should it be distributed. Sorry, I don't 
really think I've got time to go into that. Well, gone. In the passage we just read, it was a prescription given to a nation, but was worked out by individuals. There was no chief police who would come and correct you. There was no grape-picking team that would come in and make sure that there was grapes still available for the poor. It was a heart response to that. In the New Testament, it was not legally prescribed to the nation because the nation was under a Roman occupation, uh, a Roman pagan rule. So it happened in that occasion through the church and its leaders. And that happened through much of church history, modern orphanages, schools, hospitals, hospices, hospices began by Christian organizations. And sometimes should we still be doing that? But the reality in this country, if we just let it down to Christians, we might get 5% of people joining in. At the moment, there's up to 100% joining in. And that's amazing that even in a post-Christian civilization, there's something special about the fact that this country is still drawing from its Christian roots and heritage, taking responsibility for caring for the poor. Huge challenge. Huge issues. But let's continue to excel in grace, express generosity. That's why I love the fact that we're supporting a school in Zimbabwe. Forty children every week come along to a school, and we're supporting four teachers to run the school most of you will never meet those kids but 40 kids are being given the opportunity so citizens of the kingdom let's continue to feed the hungry with food bank and let's not judge and let's not criticize let's just look out let's who can we support let's give people back their dignity how let's actively look as a church how we can be doing that and let's welcome the stranger because it's not about looking after our own the gospel is all about gospel inclusion, generous inclusion. If it wasn't about generous inclusion, I certainly wouldn't be here. What is the sensible thing to do, Mr. Farage said? Look after British people or foreign nationals. The sensible Christian thing to do is look after your family and your community first. Yep, he's right. Let's look after the Christian family and let's bless the global community. Why? Because it comes with a promise. We will be blessed. It's as simple as that. The kingdom economy doesn't match the world economy. As we give and as we express generosity, even if in our extreme poverty we give, God comes through, we will be blessed. And that's kingdom living. We won't lose out. We'll never lose out if we do the right thing. The right thing is living how God wants us to live. And the promise comes, you will be blessed as a result. Let's pray. Father, some ways difficult issues because we'll have views and opinions. Sometimes I'll hear stuff about cancelling inheritance tax and, and I go, wow, that's good. Yeah, let's pass it on to the next generation. And then someone else might come along and challenge me and say, yeah, but what about distribution of wealth and what about those who are in poverty? Can we get them out? And I go, oh God, let my heart be right. Help me to excel in generosity. Lord, I thank you that we are recipients of your grace, totally undeserving, unmerited. We were the undeserving poor. We were the undeserving foreigner. We were the undeserving outsider. We were the outcast. And yet because of your lavish generosity, you have included us into your family, and I want to thank you. And I pray that I will be able to work that out towards others without judgment, without prejudice, without having to determine whether they are deserving or not, because my heart says, God, I want to bless. 
knowing that full well, as I look to bless, you will bless as well. So Father, help us to work through this subject, other issues in the next few weeks. Help us to have the grace towards one another, especially this congregation's grace towards me, if I've said stuff which is rubbish. But I pray, oh God, that you will help us to get this right, that we'll be known as people who express the goodness, the kindness, and the justice of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.